0: Come, you're expected. <music> Escape,
1: Jane. You belong to us.
0: I'm almost certain that someone is after me. Someone from my past, from something that happened in my childhood.
2: Welcome to the Bloody Pit. And once again, I am very lucky to have Mr. Robert Monell joining me uh, for another one of these uh, rather freeform episodes that I'm kind of enjoying having on the show. Mr. Monell, how are you doing?
1: Very, very well, Rod, and Thanks for inviting me. Uh, glad to have you back. Glad to
2: have you back to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about tonight because with the. Uh, burgeoning announcements uh, every other day, it seems, of the impending death of Blu-ray. It's great to be able to talk about some Blu-ray releases that are coming out that uh, are both very exciting and also involve a uh, genre of films that are well overdue for this kind of treatment.
1: Yes, yeah, sir. Sure. They sure are.
2: <laughs> now, f- foremost among the grouping of films that we're going to talk about tonight, well, I, before we get to that, let me make mention... <laughs> of one of the things that I'm most excited about. The, the, the movies we're going to talk about are all coming out from uh, Severin, and uh, the reason for this is that they, they, keep, they tend to release these things in batches, and uh, I don't know if they do this for maximum effect or just to make me bankrupt myself, but uh, they've uh, just made the announcement, and uh, I'll admit, I've already ordered it, or pre-ordered it. Uh, the Hemisphere Box of Horrors. Have you uh, have you already dipped in this one?
1: Not not yet, uh, Rod. But I'll tell you, I'm very anxious to see that because that contains some favorite Filipino horror films like Curse of the Vampires and The Blood Drinkers, directed by the great Gerardo de Leon, and uh, just a few other things that are just marvelous. And I know it's going to be a lot of fun. I am really looking forward to The
2: Blood Drinkers because I I'm fascinated by that film. It's just so exciting.
1: Gorgeous film, shot in red and blue and multicolor and black and white. It's a, it's like an experimental vampire film. Blood curdling color, right? Blood curdling color, yes.
2: <laughs> but it's also going to have uh, the torture chamber of Dr. Sadism, which a lot of people yes. are holding out as like the real gem of that set of four films.
1: Uh Aha! Very, very, very important film with Christopher Lee, uh, released in 1967. It's a German film, and I'm looking forward to having a good uh, high-definition version of it.
2: I think we all are, and I'm just, like I said, I just couldn't couldn't let this go. If we're going to talk about these films that are coming out, I just couldn't resist. My excitement over that hemisphere box of horrors is is just uh, (laughs) bubbling, bubbling, bubbling.
1: I don't know how Severn does it. They're just a terrific company, along with Mondo Macabro. Mondo Macabro and Severn are just probably my two favorite uh, film, uh, DVD, Blu-ray releasing companies. They just put so much care... Both companies put so much care into everything they release, and they release stuff that I personally want to see, and they just do a knockout job. They don't; they just do a knockout job every time.
2: I know. I, I, I wait with bated breath for uh, any new announcement from both of those companies. It yes. just thrills me. Yes. Well, the one that uh, is most exciting from the perspective of uh, EuroCult fans, I think, from the recent releases, has got to be uh, Severin's release of All the Colors of the Dark. Yes. Now, it's a Sergio Martino Giallo, which automatically means, as far as I'm concerned, it's gold. Gold.
1: Gold standard.
2: I have... I can't remember. I hate to say this, uh, but I can't remember what was the first Sergio Martino Giallo I ever saw. Uh, It might have
1: been Corso, but I can't tell you. That's a good question, Rod. Let let me give you a little background here. Uh, I first saw this film... All the Colors of the Dark is, Day of the Maniac. It was an independent international release, Sam Sherman's company, independent international. I saw it on a video in the 1980s. It was late 80s, early 90s. It was released as Day of the Maniac. It wasn't letterboxed. It was full screen. Uh, There was about like seven or eight good minutes cut out of it. And um, a friend duped it for me from California, and sent it to me, and I was just knocked out. I, that was the first Sergio Martino film I had seen. And the music by uh, Bruno Nicolai, uh, that was the first UH Finesh film I'd seen. Uh, George Hilton and uh, Ivan Rasimov, it just was really knocked me out. And now we have it in high definition with a Truck load, a trailer load, a train load <laughs> full of special <laughs> features. And I just want to say, once again, the original version of this, I saw Day of the Maniac. It, I believe some versions of it had a different ending where they had a very unhappy ending where the, the devil cult, which we'll talk about in the film, actually wins out. But it, Now, wait a minute. You're saying you saw a version of
2: All the Colors of the Dark called uh, Day of the Maniac?
1: Right, day the maniac, right, and that's an alternate version with yeah, there's stuff cut out of it. It has uh, the whole first, the whole first three or four minutes, which is an amazing surreal dream sequence, is cut out of it. And the day the maniac version, which I saw, it starts off with. You see a a skull in outer space and it's a it's a bo- version, okay? this uh, mm. pre the credit sequence. Bob Labar is the guy who designed the sequences for like uh, Frankenstein's Bloody Terror and a lot of the independent international films. The Filipino films he directed he designed some of the the credits for those. They're very they're very far out. They're a lot of fun. and they're just additions to the original uh, credit sequences in foreign language or English language credit sequences, and they're very well done, a lot of fun. In this one, it starts off with you are traveling through space. You see, like, a skull constellation. You see George Hilton and all the names, Sergio Martino. But they cut out the first very important four or five minutes of the film which explain the plot of the film in the background and they go right into a scene and then it it has an alternate ending some versions of it there's actually like two different versions of it and uh it's it's good but not as great as the full version uncut version we now have which Severn released late last year and early this year it's now on blu-ray and you can just order it online
2: well talking about Um, alternate versions I mean this this Blu-ray has the full uncut version of the film but it also has the alternate U.S. cut that's 88 minutes long it's right. under the title of uh, "They're Coming to Get You."
1: Right. There's, there's, another there's, there's several several alternate titles. Yeah. They're, they're, there's, they're coming to get you. That's an alternate title. And then there's another alternate title. I was just watching it before this broadcast called "The Day of the Maniac." Now that's another alternate version. Uh, the
2: the one you, you could go down the rabbit hole of alternate titles in some right. of these films and just get lost.
1: And then there's a, I think there's, I think there's actually a third alternate version. Now, The coming to get you is pretty much the same as uh, all the colors of the dark, but they just cut out certain scenes and have that of bar of credits. Once uh, the day, the the day the maniacs are coming to get you, one of them I know has another ending, which is a very very. Radical, unhappy ending where the devil cult wins out and you're just left holding the bag, okay? Really? <laughs> but, so, well, but, I mean, the ending of this film,
2: and we'll try to dance around this and not spoil the ending right. because... No, we don't want to do that, no. Yeah, but I will say that this, the ending of this film in the uncut version has always been one of those things that's... It's a puzzler because there's yeah. just this information dump in a voiceover, and I've always wondered exactly how people i mean how the filmmakers decided to end it the way they did
1: right and that's that's very strange i noticed that the first time i saw the film in the day of the maniac version it was even more you know you, you want you, it was more of a head scratcher and then as i said there's a third version which has an even more ambiguous ending but it's a great film i mean it's uh, it's got a very complex layered plot to it and uh, one of the things I like to say about it is I think that Ernesto Gastaldi, who I did a brief interview with him for a, a Belgian magazine I used to write for called the Eurobees, very very nice guy, very speaks English pretty well, and loves talking about his past. And you, you know he he told me that um, I, I said I remember when I was interviewing him I said Ernesto, how did you think these plots up? And he said, well I just they just came to me, and I just wanted to make something that was interesting. So, and boy, this is—but I think this is his uh, best written shallow of all the films he worked on. Well,
2: that's that's a title, best written Gastaldi script. That's a that's a title that I think there's a lot right. of uh, competition for.
1: Right, and uh, Tim Lucas, Video Watchdog, that wonderful Video Watchdog magazine had a really full-length interview with Mister Gastaldi back in the 1990s, and. Uh, he really went to town there. He explains that if if you can find that back issue of Video Watchdog, order it from them. I really recommend that because, uh, boy, he really talks about all the films he wrote. And he wrote horror films like uh, The Wonderful Whip in the Body by Mario Bava. He wrote that film. He wrote uh, uh, science fiction films. He wrote uh, Jalo films like this and uh, then he wrote westerns like My Name is Nobody, directed by uh, Tonino Valeri. supposedly some scenes were directed by Sergio Leone great, great writer, he's probably he's probably the best Euro cult writer of them all, He, he directed a few films too, some like Libido and uh, now all the colors of the dark though is uh, is just about perfect. And that's just about a perfect script, I think.
2: Oh, I completely agree. There's a one of the great things on this Blu-ray is there's a new interview or an interview mm-hmm. uh, with Mr. Gastaldi called "Last of the Mohicans." Um, yes. Of course, there's also an interview with uh, Sergio Martino as well. Yes. They really went out of their way to put a lot of juicy extras on
1: this. Yes, they really did. They really did. And uh, You get an interview with Sergio Martino, you get an interview with Ernesto Gastaldi, and you get an interview with George Hilton. Fascinating interview with George Hilton. I watched it several times now, and he talks about his entire career, when he started out in, he was born in Uruguay, and he went to, uh, made some films in Argentina, then Started in Italy in the early 60s playing bit roles and uh, made a splash with a Western directed by Lucio Fulci called Massacre Time. Terrific. Spaghetti Western and became like a Spaghetti Western star even before he got into all these Jallo roles like this film. And the first Sergio Martino giallo, which we should talk about now, I think.
2: Well, yeah, uh, there, there's a lot of competition for favorite Sergio mm-hmm. Martino Giallo, and for me, one of the one of the best is always going to be the Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. He made right. uh, the year before this.
1: Yes, yes, and that was uh, Sergio uh, Martino directed that Giallo. It became a big hit. George Hilton was the male lead in it. He plays a very ambiguous role. You don't really find out what his motives are until the very end. And it's a very similar film to uh, All the Colors of the Dark, but All the Colors of the Dark is much more of a horror film as well as being a good child.
2: That's true, and that's one of the neater things about All the Colors of the Dark, is um, I think the Giallo, as we we knew and loved it in the 70s, really got kickstarted. I mean, there's always Blood and Black Lace from Baba, but it was in 1969 when you have uh, bird with Crystal Plumage that kind of starts this cycle yes. of a huge hit right. after hit after hit after hit. And it seems kind of radical to already by 1972 with all the colors of the dark to have such a surrealistic take on some of the aspects of the story. To the point where there are points in the narrative where you have to, in the final third of the story, back up mentally and try to figure out, wait a minute, wait a minute. So she obviously imagined that thing, but she couldn't have imagined this other thing. Yes. And the great thing about the script – is that Gastaldi makes it very easy to follow, even when you're having to mentally back up within the story? Yes,
1: exactly. And that was very conscious on his part, because one of the things he keeps saying in the the interview with him is a very good detailed interview with him that he really emphasized that he wanted to make the plot airtight. That in other words, it all makes sense. He just doesn't tell it in a way that's gives it all away to you. He, you have to follow it right until the end and you're on the edge of your you're literally on the edge of your seat and you don't find out exactly how it's all going to play it out until the last maybe two or three minutes of the film then everything is as clear as it's going to be and I like that I like that very much I like it and he does leave a little bit of doubt but that's good too I think
2: well another great thing about this Blu-ray is that we have a, a let's just say incredibly knowledgeable commentary track from Kat Ellinger who mm-hmm. uh, has written an entire book on Sergio Martino
1: yes 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 exactly and so you're getting you're getting it from a lot of different perspectives you're getting you're getting uh, commentary by someone who really really knows what they're talking about you're getting the lead actor in the film you're getting the screenwriter you're getting the director you're getting an all, totally alternate cut of the film you're getting a uh, and you're getting trailers and, uh, you know, you're getting all you could possibly want about this film. Plus, you're getting a limited edition of, of the CD of the wonderful Bruno Nicolai soundtrack of the film.
2: Which is a completely top-notch selling point for somebody like me. Same here. Same here. Because it's, it's a great score. It's a score... I'm I I'm a lover of of scores in the first place. Yes, but there are a lot of scores that work better in a film than just as a piece of music. Right. But a lot of Bruno Nicolai, a lot of his scores are. I find myself gravitating toward his music over and over again.
1: Yes, I mean, how can you say otherwise? The man scored so many interesting films, spaghetti westerns. Uh, some of Jess Franco's best films. he, he scored like the ver- version Among the Living. Dad, a wonderful score. Uh,
2: oh well, hey, I I got obsessed for a long time with uh, a lot of the music that he wrote for some of the Eurospy stuff
1: in the sixties. Yes, 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 exactly. Wonderful Eurospy scores. To me,
2: this is uh, this is the kind of blu Gray release that this film deserves, and I've kind of been waiting for without knowing that anybody was ever going to do it.
1: Yes, exactly. I'm glad. I'm glad they did because it really, this film really deserves this kind of deluxe treatment. I would say, Uh, and as much as I like uh, the strange vice of Mrs. Ward, I think this is a tick better, or maybe a full score better, because not that also has a very good score, but not by Bruno Nicolai, by the way, it was by another composer, and that has the same the same uh, lead actor and actress. And that has same good direction and excellent direction in both films. Ivan Rasimov plays a really, really, really sinister villain. Okay, and he's that's not giving anything away. He's excellent in both films, but he's just extra villainous in all the colors of the dark. I mean, his eyes are just ice blue eyes, and it just send a chill up your spine. And you see a lot of spaghetti western type close-ups of Ivan Rasimov's eyes.
2: <laughs> well, Ivan Rasimov's face was built to be a villain. I mean, yes, <laughs> he, he just one look at him and your blood chills.
1: Yeah, we're not giving anything away by telling you all that he is just a superb villain in this film and in so many films, so many jello films.
2: Well, now you is All the Colors of the Dark your favorite of uh, Martino Giallo's?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because my favorite was The Strange Place of Mrs. Ward. I, I just love the music for that one. I uh, <clears throat> love the atmosphere of it, and it's got a really tricky layered plot to it. But after seeing this presentation, this Blu-ray, I would say now this is now my favorite Sergio Martino Giallo, if not one of my all-time favorite Giallos. I, I could tell you my all-time favorite Giallo, I'm not very original here, is probably Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace. I just got the new the new Blu-ray release. It's the, I think it's the second or third Blu-ray release of it. And I just wanted I, I want to have every possible release of that film. I just love that film. I love the, the splashy colors. I love the, the music. I love Cameron Mitchell. I love everything about it. And so that's my always going to be my top favorite one. It's also one of the first. Uh, Deep Red by Daryl Argento is probably up there too. But yeah. this would be alongside – this would be the top two or three is, along with those few. Uh, how oh, do you feel about that? Would you say that?
2: It used to be The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward. It may still be. Mm-hmm. Um, I do love Torso, but Torso is almost this weird amalgam of uh, Giallo and – kind of a proto slasher which yes. makes it really really interesting and inventive it yes. I, I think a, a double feature of torso and bay of blood would be truly
1: intriguing yes yes exactly because they're both the bay of blood i think came up bay of blood was came out in 71 or 72 mm-hmm. that might be that may actually be the proto of all the slasher films mario bava especially for the friday the 13th series yeah and, then, and then, and then Torso, I think, came out in 73 or 74, was it? That played a drive-ins with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, I think it was Craig Ledbetter or somebody pointed out that if that's actually got more blood and gore than the Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
2: That's true. That's true. Because famously, you, Texas Chainsaw really doesn't have that much blood and gore because, well, they couldn't afford it. So, Yeah,
1: yeah if you think about it, you, you hear a lot of things you heard a chainsaw, you heard a guy, the people screaming in the other room, but you don't really see that much. You see people running around with blood on them, but in Torso, you there's some pretty graphic stuff going on. People are being chopped apart with, like, hacksaws, mm-hmm. it's, and it's really well done. Once again, I remember asking Ernesto Gustaldi about the end of that film, where he came and he said, I don't know, he said, I just thought it was a good, good way to end the film, but... Uh, <laughs> That, that's that's a good one. I'd recommend it, but it's not as good as 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 a strange vice Mrs. Warder. It's not as good as as all the colors of the dark. I mean, it just doesn't have the script, the cast, and the music all in place there. You know, it doesn't. It's good, but not great. Those two are great. Well,
2: I'm a major fan of Martino because he's one of those guys who was able to move from genre to genre and always come up with a film that just really entertained me. I mean, yes. uh, I think a man called blade, his, uh, yes. his, uh, 1975 spaghetti Western. I think it was the last of his Westerns. I think yes. it's phenomenal. I think it's one of the best spaghetti Westerns. I think it's easily top 20, top 25 yes, of the yes. entire genre. Yes. And then I am a huge fan of what he moved into in the eighties when, when he moved into doing post-apocalyptic films. I mean, that's a genre that's really looked down on, but I have a lot of affection for it.
1: Yeah, a lot of fun. Those films are a lot of fun. He even made two cannibal films. At least, one, I, I keep thinking it's two, but uh, The Mountain of the Cannibal God made, I think it was in 77 or 78, with Ursula Andrus and uh, Stacey Kichetz. It's, it's a very, very effective uh, cannibal epic. And it, and it predates uh, some of the other can. I think it predates a cannibal holocaust. I can't remember.
2: I think you may be right, but also he has um, he has a special place in my heart for having made uh, a, uh, Island of the Fishmen, which got yes. turned into Screamers over here yes. because Island of the Fishmen is just a brilliant kind of Jules Verne style uh, yes. Italian period piece. I think it's phenomenal.
1: I haven't seen that one, but since you recommended it, I'm going to check it. In fact, I think it's on YouTube or or, or uh, Amazon Prime and that or the Screamer's Cut, which I've also heard is a lot of fun. I guess that's the American version, right?
2: Yeah, the, the Screamer's Cut alters a good bit, but you can see you can see the majority of the film. I vastly prefer the Island of the Fishman version, the original Italian version, or uh-huh, some, you okay. know, dubbed in English, of course. But it's just, like I say, it's Jules Verne, it's monsters, it's just a joy. We
1: well, don't want to forget, he also directed a giant alligator film, too.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Which, I yes. love that movie, too.
1: Right, right. And, um, yeah, he moved from genre to genre. He did, he did some very... Very fun, very <clears throat> fast-moving post-apocalypse films. He did uh, giant monster films. He did a cannibal film. He did Jalos. He did Westerns. And they're all done on a very, very high level of craftsmanship. He was always a uh, better-than-average craftsman, I would say.
2: Oh, yeah. And he and he did good crime movies, too. <laughs> but, yes. hey, hey we're, we're lavishing all of our time and praise on to Sergio Martino. Yeah. Uh, let's— Take a take a moment to uh, let people know that uh, along with uh, when Severn released all the Colors of the Dark on Blu-ray, there was a companion release.
1: Yes, all the Colors of the Jallo, which is all about the Jalo genre. It's a
2: three-disc set. Um, man, it's a collection of uh, Jalo trailers, mm-hmm. and holy crap! There's also a feature-length documentary on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interview with uh, John Martin, the editor of Giallo Pages, where you kind of have him giving his thoughts on the entire genre. And the most amazing thing to me is, man, Cat Ellinger doing an audio commentary over all of the trailers.
1: Right. Now let me go into a little bit detail here. There's 82 trailers. I believe it's 82. There's over eight. Let's say there's over 80 trailers on this. It's, it's over four hours of Jallo trailers, and it goes all the way from the very first Jallos, uh, which are uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, wonderful Mario Baba film, Black and White, Blood and Black Lace. And then it just goes on and on from there. It goes libido. It goes into uh, the uh, Umberto Lenzi jallos, like uh, paranoia. And then it goes into like the Dario Argento jallos. And then it goes into uh, 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 Ricardo Freitas, Iguana with a Tongue of Fire. With a Tongue of Fire. Then it goes into mid-70s jallos. Right up until like the 80s Jalos, like uh, Lucio Fulci's uh, uh, The New York Ripper was one of the last ones in there, and his earlier Jallo was psychic. Now some of them we see tr- the German travelers for, some of them we see English-speaking travelers for, some of them we see the Italian travelers for. So it's a wonderful and pulmonary of giallo travelers, international travelers. <clears throat> And I don't know how she did it, but Kat Ellinger manages to find something interesting to say about each and every one of them. I certainly could not have done that.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, Kat, or should I say Miss Ellinger, I've never met her. She's an impressive uh, film historian. I don't know what else to call her. I think she does an amazing work. And, man, <clears throat> I, I haven't made it through all of these trailers yet, but holy crap. Thank goodness she did this. I mean, it's going <clears> to <throat> impart a little bit more knowledge to me. About man, even the ones well, even the ones that I thought I knew backwards and forwards because I've watched them too often.
1: Yes, yes, I I learned I learned things myself from the commentary and and there's just so much to comment on in the, in, in all of them. I mean, some of these I've seen some of these films, some of these eighty-two jail. I certainly have not seen all of them. Okay, and uh, my my just before we go into the rest of it, just, you know, some other, one of my favorite Jalos is going to be released for the first time on Blu-ray in a few months. Uh, Ricardo Freitas, uh, the iguana with a tongue of fire, a completely batshit, uh, <laughs> crazy Jalos. Excuse my uh, language, but it's completely crazy Jalos with a crazy serial killer and with a crazy motive and a wonderful Stelvio Cipriani score and, uh, uh, up, I,
2: love, I love that composer. He's so good.
1: Yes, and he's another one we should talk about at some point. We could do a whole podcast just on him. He did the wonderful music for uh, Bay of Blood. Mm-hmm. And just a wonderful composer. And this is my favorite of his score zone, the Iguana with a Tongue of Fire. So I'm really going to be ordering that. I should have ordered it already, That, or, that from the wonderful arrow people who always do a bang-up job also so that that's definitely one of my favorite ones and they have a german trailer for that in there completely in german but but hey it's 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 really fun to see it just a trailer because that's not a that well-known of a jalo. and it's uh, and they're finally releasing a good blu-ray of it which i'm very very anxious to get my hands on
2: well, I'm looking forward to that release as well. I'm, Arrow, you're right, does amazing work. Yes. And one of the reasons I'm excited is I've seen Iguana with a Tongue of Fire once before. Uh, it was a long time ago. My memories are dim. But I do know that in general, that's not a film that's
1: held in high
2: esteem amongst Giallo fans.
1: No, it's not. And, and the thing about that is, it's um, once again, I, I, I saw the first time I saw it, I saw a very poor VHS copy of it. It was, had sync problems, but I still thought that the setting is set in Dublin, Ireland. And it's all shot in location there. You don't usually see that in Ireland. But it actually manages to integrate a lot of these Irish, charming Irish locations into the plot. And it plays off against, we think of Ireland as kind of like, you know, John Ford's The Quiet Man, you know, a really charming place. Well, it really has, (laughs) it's a very, very gory film. Yeah. Very, very gory, very perverse in some regards. And uh, The Killer has really bizarre motives. And it's it's a pretty heavy film. Hard R rating, definitely. And uh, I, I just thought that worked well and the, the, the music works well. So that's definitely good news. and I, I definitely would hopefully uh, want to see that and hopefully talk about that sometime in the future. That's not going to be out, I think, until maybe another month from now. Okay. Okay.
2: Well, listen. Back to uh, this three-disc set called All the Colors of Giallo. Um There's an entire second disc, a DVD, called The Case of the Krimi.
1: Right. Now that's a whole other story. They have like not. They don't have eighty-two trailers, but they have, they have an hour and a half worth of Krimi trailers. Okay. Now the Krimis were the German crime films. S- first in black and white, then some appeared in color, which started like mm-hmm. in the late 50s, which many film critics rightfully see as what the films that kind of generated the Jawa. Uh, Dario Argento's The Bird of the Crystal Plumage, I think was very influenced by uh, the Krimi style. It, they have a different type of tone. Uh, they have usually, they're not quite as surreal in style and, Plot or broken plot is the Jallo films, and uh, they usually have, you know, the inspector, and then the inspector's boss is there, and the inspector's boss's secretary plays a role. There's play.
2: a there's a fair amount of uh, the police procedural within the Krimi genre. Right.
1: right, there's more of a police procedural, and they're usually more logical, and uh, yeah. And usually, uh, wonderful, Joachim Fuchsberger, the late German actor, usually plays the inspector in so many of those a Wonderful actor. Uh, And uh, then they have his boss, and they have, like, uh, Eddie Arendt, who's kind of a German comic actor, plays, like, the (laughs) foil. He's, He's, like, the bumbling cop. And then there's Klaus Kinski.
2: Who shows up in a number of them, yeah.
1: Right. And Klaus Kinski became famous in Germany for his roles in the Krimis in the early 60s. This is before he was known in the U.S. for his you know, later so-called serious films with Werner Herzog, like Aguera, The Wrath of God, and Nosferatu, and Fitzcarraldo, which are wonderful films. But before that, he was making Krimis, then Jalos, Italian westerns, and then he did the Werner Herzog films.
2: Let, let's not forget. Okay, yes. On that second disc, they have the a bunch of crummy trailers. Which, yes. if you if you've never been introduced to that entire genre, this trailer compilation will will not only introduce you to it, but probably send you scrambling trying to find some of these movies. Yes, yes,
1: exactly. Yes,
2: because they're so much fun. That entire subgenre. I just I, I return to it constantly.
1: Yes. Yes. Now I don't. I personally don't have as many crimies in my DVD. I don't think I have any of the Blu-rays uh, in my DVD collection. I have a few of them, and uh, some of them are just wonderful, like uh, the the Phantom of Soho, I think is one of the very best ones. Uh, uh, the um, the just, Green Archer. The Green Archer was one of the first ones I believe, and uh, then they had like some later ones which were like kind of combinations between like Krimi and Mm Jalo like like Ricardo Freitas' Double Face which was actually uh supposedly from Edgar Wallace because Edgar Wallace was the, supposedly the person who wrote in his son, Brian Edgar Wallace, who supposedly their, their, novels and stories were supposedly the basis of all these crimmies. Although from what I understand, I haven't read the novels and stories of crimmies really changed the plots.
2: <laughs> they changed them quite a bit. When I first started uh, getting into these films a number of years ago, I tracked down um, several of the Edgar Wallace books and read them and, <laughs> They're great. I really enjoyed them, but at the same time, um, not always adhering to the letter of the story necessarily. Right. But they're you know they're making films and you know alterations are part of the game.
1: Yes, and one of the the films I'm going to talk about briefly is Ricardo Freitas' uh, Double Face. It's also called Liz and Helen, I believe, one of the alternate titles, and made with Kloskinski. I, I feel like that's his best performance in any gel or or crimmy because he's very subdued in it he's it's a very subtle performance for once he's not over the top and he ends up giving what I think is his best performance in that genre not probably his best performances in one of the Werner the Herzog films like Nosferatu or Fitzcarraldo but he's very good in that it's a 1969 film it's, it was based an Edgar Wallace story, but it was done by an Italian director, Freda, who directed The Horrible Dr. Hitchcock and a lot of key Italian horror films. He was past his prime there and he directed this film. It was made in, uh, it was shot in location in London and in Rome, and it was supposedly based on an Edgar Wallace story. And that was one of the last Edgar Wallace, I think it came out in 1969 or 70s films to come out, but it it, it was advertised as more of a a Jalo in, in Italy, and then as a Krimi in German countries. And Klaus Kinski, who was both straddled both genres, is very good in that. Margaret Lee's in it. And, and that's a good film if you want to study what the difference, slight differences are between the Krimi and Jalo because it has elements of both. And I hope someday that film comes out in high definition if it's not out already, already in Europe. I don't have a high definition. Well,
2: I have picked up, uh, because I have a, a, some really nice friends who live in Germany, I have been able to pick up some of the uh, German Blu-rays of some of the Krimies the and... Um, they look so good. And the films yes. – well, the films are great to begin with. So if you can ever get your hands on those, um, they are worth it.
1: Yeah, I know that they've had some Blu-rays come out in Germany of some of the crimmies, as you said. I, I don't have any of those. I'm not too sure which ones came out. But I'm sure some of the classics are out there. I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're in English, though. But um,
2: yeah, I have uh, two sets. Uh, each one has three films. Only one of those six movies doesn't have an English option.
1: Uh-huh. Okay. That's good to know. I was very
2: happy to get my hands on those. That was a great gift from a, from a fan of the podcast. That's something that I can never fully repay. Well, you, but you have to order those from Germany, though, right? Especially, oh, he he, um, he bought them in Germany and sent
1: them to right. me. I, I hope a company like Arrow comes out with some of those Krimies and it distributes them a little more widely and has more English-friendly <laughs> uh, distribution of them. I, I'm, I'm hoping, I think that will happen in the future. Well, I there, hope
2: it happens. I've I, I've always thought that there's a perception that
1: there's not a large
2: audience for them, and I'm wondering, and I'm well, just to say hope that uh, this release with this entire DVD of just a bunch of trailers from the genre might spur some more interest and make people. Really start asking questions, and hopefully, yeah, we'll start to get some uh, domestic releases of some of those films, and I think,
1: I think they have the potential to do well. Yes. And Then there's the third disc on there. Not only do we get two, we get three discs, which is the strange sounds of the bloodstained films.
2: Now this is a CD. It's a it's a compilation of a bunch of music from Giallo's.
1: Yes. There's 20 different tracks on here, okay? And they go from, they start out with Nightmare, a track by Carlos Savina uh, from a Antonio Margariti film. And goes through a uh, sitar in blues from one on top of the other by Reese Artolani. It goes, it has the cues from The Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, from a lizard, The Lizard and the Woman's Skin, from The Coat of the Scorpion, all the way up to uh, New York One More Day from the New York Ripper.
2: I have to say, as someone who loves scores from, well, from films of this type, from Giallos and from the Krimis and all, just this incredible music, these this these CDs they've included in these two releases are CDs that I would have bought you know, on my yes. own just if they released them solo. So putting them in this set, to me, is just saving me a little bit of money in a way.
1: Exactly. And it's just... A wonderful, a wonderful addition. And if you look at these 20 movies that they're from, these 20 films are probably the top 20 Jalo films, okay? I mean, they're all top-line films. And, and you're hearing, in some cases, the theme music. In some places, it's a little bit lesser known music, but it's all great stuff by, by yeah. Nicolai, by uh, Damasi, by uh, Cipriani, by uh, j- just all the master, wonderful composers so that right there is worth the price of admission just that one cd but yeah this 3d set is it's top
2: notch i mean it's it's the kind of thing that uh, you hope for but you don't really think anybody else out there is thinking about marketing
1: yes and and yes and i would just highly recommend it Uh, it's like uh it's it's hours and hours of great music and uh and, and once again there's also a there's also a featurette there about Jowls, and there's also John Martin, who published and edited Jowl Pages, which was one of the best, I think, 80s and 90s uh, fanzines. Uh, I hadn't seen him or heard from him like in t- <laughs> several decades, but he gives you a really concise look at what the Jowls were all about, and goes into the history of it, and that's that's great stuff. He really does a good job
3: there. <laughs> It's just a farmhouse and looks pretty innocent from the road. But once you're inside, you'll see what really happens on a terror farm. Invasion of the Blood Farmers. <coughs> 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 Coming in the dead of night. Coming to plant the living and harvest the dead. (laughs) Invasion of the blood farmers.
0: Within a week, the lab will be flooded with with human blood. (laughs) I can't stop it.
3: Are you strong enough? More raw terror, more stomach-turning shock than you can take. Therefore, we warn you, don't eat before you see invasion of the blood farmers, and you'll have nothing to lose. the living and harvest the dead. Invasion of the Blood Farmers, released by NMD Films, in color, rated PG, parental guidance suggested.
2: Well, it's not only Euro cult stuff that Severin is giving us out these days. They occasionally send us something very strange and out of the ordinary, at least for the normal film buyer. They're about to start putting out a few Australian cult films, but... They've also dipped deeply into uh, an American cult film, one that um, I saw years and years ago when it was put out on DVD originally. and That was my first encounter with it, but uh, Invasion of the Blood Farmers. Boy, it's a 1970s weird little thing. Isn't it?
1: 1972, directed by Ed Adlam, co-written by Ed Callaher. Now, these were the two guys who wrote the script for The Shriek of the Mutilated, the upstate New York shot Yeti film directed by the legendary Michael Finlay. And Michael Finlay... Was married to the famous Roberta Finlay, who's still around, who directed a lot of uh, adult films uh, together with her husband back in the 1960s, like uh, The Curse of Her Flesh, Touch of Her Flesh, some classics like that. Uh, supposedly they worked on snuff. They turned that into an international sensation. But they also made uh, non-adult films, like this one was edited by Mr. Finlay. Uh, Roberta Finlay shot The Shriek and the Mutilated, the Shetty film, and she did some very good cinematography. He directed that. Uh, this film was just directed and written by the writers of The Shriek of the Mutilated uh, and uh, Ed Adlam uh, did co-write and directed it okay and it's just uh as it says in the ad it's a 1972 grindhouse classic and it's scanned from the original negative with new bonus materials and i want to say it just looks uh, spectacular here i couldn't believe how good this looks it looks like they uh they just shot it the colors pop and it's, uh, candy-colored, it's a candy colored it's a candy colored gore film about a cult <laughs> yeah. of a cult of ancient druids who uh, are somehow uh, alive and well in early 1970s upstate New York. And they're trying to revive their queen by kidnapping locals and uh, pumping blood into the queen's uh, circulatory system. So that's the crazy plot for this crazy film. And it's, uh, it's wonderful to see a 24 made, uh, how many made, you know, uh, almost 50 years ago look this good and be so much fun.
2: It is such a bizarre film. I'll never forget. Um, I got to say, the the first time I ever saw this was on the uh, the old Blu-ray of it. And I when I bought the Blu-ray, the uh, fellow I was buying it from this was in a just a regular retail store, kind of a actually kind of a secondhand store. The guy looked at me as I was buying it, and he asked me this simple question: "What are you watching this for?" And I just watched? looked at him with this quizzical look, and I said. I'm just hoping to be entertained, man.
1: You're watching it to have fun, and that's what this film is. This film—I had yeah. heard about this—I had heard about this film before. Like I think I first heard about this film from Michael Weldon's a Psychotronic Film Book. Okay, I, when I first got that back in when when was that published? The 1990s? Oh, lord, that was the late eighties. Late eighties. That was the first film book I had that, and and, and then that was even before like Video Watchdog, I think, wasn't it? Um, and but. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a which was kind of a good watchdog. Obviously, it was a creme de la creme of these type of, of magazines. But Weldon was around uh, for a long time. He wrote the book. And I remember hearing of this where I first heard about this film and Shriek of the Mutilated. Now, I had actually yeah. seen Shriek of the Mutilated at the drive in. Where I'm from, and, and I, I live in upstate New York, but more upstate than than where they were filming these films, which was in Westchester County. I live I live in real upstate New York, which is like you know almost to Canada, okay. And, <laughs> and but I'll tell you, they they shot these films what would be in the sticks that would would New York people would call New York City people would call the sticks, and they were they were New York people, they New York City people, they came up here. They cast these films from like off, off, off Broadway people. Some of them were less than good actors. Some of them were fairly <laughs> yes. Good some curious. of them
2: were definitely less than good actors.
1: I I, had, I saw Shriek of the Mutilated, which was made the year after this film, in seventy three, maybe seventy four, at the drive-in in the mid seventies. I think I saw it like in nineteen seventy summer, maybe nineteen seventy five, and it had just been when it was brand new, and it, it looked it looked. Pretty bad. Okay, I remember seeing it the drive-in, and the sound was not good as drive-ins were. And the, it, it looked like it was blown up from 16 millimeter. I'm not sure what it was shot in, no, it but it's fl-
2: probably. You're probably right in guessing it was blown up from 16 mil. Yeah,
1: it really looked at it if the drive. And this was the same drive-in I remember I had seen in the early 70s. I think in 1972, where I had seen two a double Andy Milligan, a man Andy Milligan double bill, at this drive-in. Which was uh, uh, torture guard, uh, torture dungeon, and uh, and uh, the the one about cannibalism. I can't remember the the title of it. Okay, and uh, they were both looked terrible. Okay, this the, the this was you Andy, mean they were
2: just bad prints.
1: Right, they were bad, just chewed up prints. There was like a splice every ten seconds almost. You know, and it was Andy Milligan, <laughs> Double Bill, torture garden, and. Um, and the one about this the Sweeney Todd one, okay? I can't remember the title of it right now, but they looked they looked pretty bad. I had I, never seen films like that looked that seemed they that, that, that looked this badly made or they had this kind of acting. But that was in the early 70s <laughs> 70, 72 maybe. This one I saw like in the mid 70s, the shriek and the mutilated. It was written by the writers of this film, but it was hilarious. The, the, the dialogue was campy. It was kind of like a John Waters film Yeah, or a, yeah. You know, they, you could tell that they knew they were having fun with it. And it was fairly cleverly written. Now, this film was even cheaper than Sh- Shrieking the Mutilated, this uh, in- invasion of the blood farmers. It's got a preposterous plot. <laughs> it's act- insane. The, the acting is uh, I mean, atrocious. At- Let's yeah. be Accurate. right it's right amazingly the, the, atrocious. The acting, the acting is atrocious it's it's not even off 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 Milligan used people his actors are like off off broad. they were the first off 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 Broadway people from the 60s when he was doing this and it, they were fairly literate but the, the acting here is just abysmal but it's so <laughs> but th- th- this is literally a so bad film that it's great you've heard about the so bad that it's good well this is so bad that it's great. Okay. The acting in a lot is so, of ways, yeah. The acting is so abysmal that you actually it becomes entertaining. Yeah. Okay. The 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 level of uh, of ineptitude in the acting becomes <laughs> just just consistently entertaining throughout its seventy seven minute runtime. Oh well, it, the thing is, it's not even the acting that's 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 not its only
2: point of uh, of terribleness. I think I, I I think that it would be um it would be possible to write an entire essay on just how bad the shot choices are. It's almost as if, in certain instances, they sat there and looked at the situation and went, where would be the worst
1: place to put yes. the camera? Yes, exactly. That's And that's what it looks like. It looks like they found the least interesting or least stylish or, or least photographically compelling place to place to, to <laughs> yes. put the camera in. they said let's put the camera over here to show what's going on like on the edge of the scene you know and so you, you never get a sense of the cameras well balanced or it's a nice no. it's a it's like sometimes in Andy Milligan films, say, hey, that's an interesting shot he put together there yeah. on a whole budget, or that's an interesting line of dialogue. In, in here, the camera always seems to be in the wrong place, like it's off kilter, <laughs> but not in an interesting way, or it's in the wrong corner of the room, or you have to look like it's... Or it's the, focused on the wrong thing. Or it's focused on something in the foreground, and it should be not focused there. And yeah, but... But the colors and the the actual technical quality of the print is very good. The this the, It's expertly scanned, and it's obviously from the negative. So the colors just really pop. I mean, it's like, wow. It's <laughs> hard to believe that the movie looks this good. It looks spectacular, okay? And it's it just adds to the fun of it, how good it looks and how bad the acting, how bad the <laughs> photography, how bad the, 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 the dialogue is. It just all comes together in a, a, a perfection of uh, – arti- it's an artistic catastrophe, but it looks <laughs> – but it, but it looks perfect. It's a perfect uh, example. It's like going back to 1972 and seeing this as a drive-in. Only it never looked as good at the drive-in. Well, a number of things. One, this is in the same category for me
2: as Plan Nine from Outer Space, which yes. has so yes. many mistakes and errors and bad choices and yes. silly contrivances and bizarre, just bizarre aspects of it as a piece of art. But there's something compelling about it. I can't yeah. figure it out. It I can't doesn't either. ever make sense. But
1: right. I can't take my eyes off of it. No, I couldn't either. I mean, I, I saw it uh, a few weeks ago on a Saturday, I saw it on a Saturday afternoon. I just had gotten the, the new uh, uh, Blu-ray in the mail, and then I said, you know, I got it. and I saw it on a Friday afternoon. When I got I took it took it right out just. Popped it in watched it. said, oh, my God, that, that was so much fun. I watched it twice again the next day. And I couldn't believe how much fun it was just to see this unfolding catastrophe, the, the dialogue, the actors, the, uh, the inanity of the whole thing. Just just uh, how could anyone conceive something this ridiculous <laughs> and, then, and then just do it, just photograph it, just get people to do it and be involved with it and shoot a, a feature film. Well, they, I'm a I'm a weirdo in, in
2: a lot of different ways for certain types of filmmaking. And one of the things about a low budget film of this type that fascinates me is uh, this film that, you know, they went up to upstate New York and shot this thing in real locations in this in this small town. And that right. is one of the appeals of this movie for me is you get to see these real places right. from what was 1972. You right. get to see what these places look like these right. this, these bars these houses these roads the cars right. and it's like this bizarre little window into the past and right I hate to say it but that is a big part of the fascination for me yes right. all of the, the 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 amalgam of of attempted artistic creation is a complete swirling disaster area and that's entertaining on its own but I'm a weirdo because I actually like being able to to look at like that bar they they shoot so many scenes yes. in and kind of see what just see what it really looked like.
1: Yeah. It, yes, and it's it, it's a it's a it's a perfect time capsule into a specific time nineteen seventy one or seventy two and place upstate New York. Now, I've I've lived in upstate New York for most of my life, except for a few years. in and New York, I, I lived in New York City for a while. I lived in Florida for a while. I've lived in Europe for a while. And, I'm back in upstate New York and it still looks like that today. But back only back then you had the the big gas eating cars like you see in the film. You had yeah. the you had the fifty they identified it as a fifty seven Chevy in the commentary, but it's actually a, a fifty five Chevy, which it would have been like uh, what, fifteen years old then, but it looks like it's about two hundred years old. The doors are falling off, it's it's a rust bucket, but that's the way <laughs> old cars look. Yeah. Upstate New York. And it, it's fun just for details like that, seeing the old 1950s cars which are parked all over the place. The, the All the locations look like they're falling apart. And it was all shot at the director's house, I believe. He talks about that in the commentary. That's where the director lived. He shot it in his own, literally in his own backyard.
2: <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I've not been able to listen to the commentary track yet. Is that true? Right. Because yeah, i got to say, that place looks like it's falling down.
1: Listen to the commentary. It's like a, it's like a, a typical New England 1950 style, one-family home, maybe for a husband and a wife and a, one child. Okay.
2: Oh, oh, oh. You mean where the? Um, I'm sorry. Where the, uh, the? The. The family lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I I was thinking about that ramshackle shack right. that uh, the uh, the druids are in with their right. their fake Heck. glass coffin.
1: Right, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, that that place really looks like it's con- it condemned. But yeah. the place where the family lives it's literally it's like a, a blue a place you it's like the blue velvet neighborhood, you know. It's, <laughs> but it's the it's white picket fence. It's like a, a a freshly painted white house. <laughs> Everything's all neat inside. It's got like you know, like a coffee table, or one of those old huge television sets, and uh, it, it's it's fairly it looks like a typical early 1970s, late 60s, one-family New England style home. And I, the, it was the director lived there, or he his wife lived there. It was a family home, and they shot literally in their own backyard, and uh, that stuff. That's amazing. Good. But when they go, like, to the sheriff's office or, the, like, where the druids are, and then parts of it are shot, like, in uh, 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 some kind of mine area, which is uh, actually elevated, where he talks about they have some kind of uh, mineral there, which is mined by some company. It looks like a kind of a druidic setting, you know? And uh, But... There was no money involved with this whatsoever. It was shot for (laughs) $24,000. I'm sure most of the budget went into buying the film and getting the film processed nobody was paid they paid the actor supposedly with six packs of beer that's what they talked about in the commentary which and, is, it,
2: and it sounds that way too
1: right it sounds like they some people may have been had one too many <laughs> and uh, yeah there's a commentary with Ed old woman one of the actresses in it that's mo- moderated by Carolla Janess, the author uh, author of house of psychotic women very well known and um, and
2: I, I love her work she's fantastic yeah
1: yes and uh, she she also interviews, um, I believe, Mr. Adlam in another uh, feature where he talks about he talks about Michael Finley working with him, how he met him. He was he edited the film. That's probably the best thing about the film, the editing, actually, because Michael Finley was a pretty technically competent guy. He kind of knew how to make films, but he had been making films since the '60s, adult films. And he kind of knew yeah. he knew how to put together a. A semi-professional-looking film out of this disastrous footage they shot with bad acting, bad dialogue. <laughs> and at least make it hang together. So he did do that. Well, we're really, we're really making this sound like something everybody needs to see. Right. No, they should see it because it's just so entertaining.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. That's just it. That's what I was trying to get across with that anecdote from my past, which is, you know, if somebody wonders why are you watching this, it's because I want to be entertained, man. And this film succeeds on that level.
1: Yeah, it's it really watching- does. 150% proof entertainment. You now, are just the interview the first,
2: you're talking about, is that the extra on the disc? I've not gone through the extras. Is it the, the one called Nothing You'd Show Your Mom?
1: Right. First you get an audio commentary with uh, Eddie Ed Adlim and his, his actor's friend. It's moderated by Carol Ejeunesse. And they talk in detail about the making of the film, every scene. Like the sheriff you see in the film was one of their friends. He was... Uh, yeah he wasn't he, an actor he was nobody was really an actor and uh Ed Ad, the co-writer director actually got a major role in the film you know and uh it was all family and friends, and they all were paid by give them a six pack of beer or buy them buy them a meal out one night, and that's how they were paid. And it has that real family kind of feeling. And the thing about it is, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of gore in the film. You know, it's a fairly gory film. Yeah, So they, they spent a, or, they must it's just,
2: a It's a bloody film. Let's put it that yeah, way.
1: Yeah, it's it's a bloody film. There's a, it's not Lucio Fucci type role, but it's it's fairly bloody for its time. I, I guess he talks about how they. Um, had to get a cut some scenes or not show the MPAA some scenes to get like a PG rating, rating <laughs> rather than an R. I guess they were originally going to give it like an R or maybe even an X rating, and they wanted to get a, a more a looser rating so they could show it in more theaters. And I don't know. I'm sure to show it showed the drive-in around here. I, I didn't see this one. I did see Shrieking the Mutilated, which I think was rated R, but um, actually. Some people probably would have wanted an R rating, you know, but it's it's a fairly gory film, and there's there's a lot of blood and gore in certain scenes, and uh, other scenes are they're just getting into like once again acting out this kind of druidic thing where the you have the high priest and you have the the pre, the, the goddess in the glass coffin. Literally, she was in a glass coffin, and they had to kind of make sure she didn't suffocate in there. They talk about that <laughs> a lot. Well, uh, let's. It's interesting.
2: Whenever you start talking to filmmakers from the uh, early '70s through the mid '70s, when they start talking about uh, the rating system and trying to divine, you know, right. what it would take to get a PG versus an R. I'm always curious whether or not uh, any particular set of filmmakers may have seen an R as advantageous. In other words, if your film has an R at the drive-in, then it has kind of that mystique of the of the of the uh, the forbidden. There's something there that might right. be, you know. That might entice people to go and see it more than if it were rated PG. And I often wonder, how are different filmmakers, especially independent filmmakers, kind of judging that back and forth? Were they aiming for one or the other? So it sounds like they get into a discussion of that here.
1: Yes, they do. And, uh, I mean, back then, in the mid-'70s, I was – frequenting the drive-in quite a bit and sometimes i'd go with a few friends and we'd have her we'd have a few you know we'd have a few six packs with us you could do that kind of thing back then you could smuggle something into drink you can't do that nowadays you can't obviously drive drink and drive but back then all kinds of things went on the drive-ins and <laughs> and boy uh back then myself and my friends probably wouldn't have gone to see a you know a g or a p what is it, what was it was a pg rated movie or an m movie. We were yeah. looking for we were looking for R-rated stuff, you know, something that had violence or you know something else in it that we might want to see. And uh, so, if it was rated PG, myself, I would have avoided. I don't know what I don't know what this would have this might have shown, like some drive-ins with a certain rating and other drive-ins with another rating, because they would constantly recycle these films back in the seventies you know, these Andy Milligan films or, or this type of film by, you know, where the Finleys were involved, Where maybe they would show like a certain drive-ins would show like a PG version and other drive-ins would have R-rated scenes they'd snip out, especially if the drive-in was facing like a, a, a you know, a, a place where people were driving past it, you know what I mean? They don't want they don't want to be causing accidents by, you know, people rubbernecking to look at something on the screen, you know? so the, Yeah, the,
2: I did. especially with nudity, that would be something that would
1: right. be a concern. Right, and so I think violence, in a way, was probably more acceptable than any than that type than something like that, you know. So yeah, so so the boundary between, you know, I saw a lot of pretty extreme. I remember seeing David Cronenberg's Rabbit at the drive-in in nineteen, it was in seventy-seven or seventy-eight, and that was pretty outrageous. But it was, I think, that must have been rated R, you know. I don't. Yeah. So it you know, was. And, and I do remember seeing Shrieking and the Mutilator, which was actually directed by Michael Finlay. And she uh, shot by Roberta Finlay. Who was a, she was a very, very good cinematographer, by the way. And a very good director, you know. And uh, and then they talk about Michael Finlay. He talks a lot. They talk a lot on the commentary. Ed Adlam, who was a good friend of his. And on the featurette where he's interviewed, sit down, about his very tragic death on top of the Pan Am building. And that awful helicopter accident, which was in I believe in nineteen seventy seven and a very emotional you know conversation about that, and very tragedy and what happened around that. So it's a a really fascinating uh, backstory there. and uh, Frederick Elms, w- 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 the cinematographer for Blue Velvet actually worked on this film as a cinematographer,
2: okay? yeah, I, I saw that. I did not realize that somebody from this film went on to do something well right. that well known.
1: Right, and, and but actually, this film has interesting parallels with some of Lynch's, like Eraserhead and Blue Velvet. It's got at times at its best. I think it has that feeling of horrific things happening behind closed doors in you know uh, middle, yeah. America, middle America. Although that's it's, that's very true. Yeah, although it's not as artistically um, confident or, or artistically expressed as. David Lynch did because David Lynch was a genius there's not many filmmakers around right now who who are as good as he is even today 40 this years this is later. true and so yeah so this is definitely a, a highly recommended package you're you're going to buy this you're going to say well, why am I buying this and then you're going to watch it and say oh my god I'm so glad I bought this <laughs>
2: <laughs> and yeah I mean it comes with uh, you know an interview with the cinematographer uh, an interview with uh, another one of the actors Um and you know, like I say, the the, the feature that I, I wanna dive into first, the, is that commentary track, just because who'd have ever thought we'd get a commentary
1: track on this film? No I, I would have never thought of it, but it's, it's a very entertaining commentary track and a very informative one about low budget filmmaking, about what you have to do to, to make the film and you know how how quickly you have to shoot and how you have to be quick and efficient and get it in the can. And at the same time, if you make a mistake, you can't, you can't necessarily go back and correct it. You just have to, you just have to get it done. And that's what he talks about. And uh, and that's what they did. And I'm, I'll watch this film. I've, I've I've seen it like two or three times already since I first got it in the mail a few weeks ago. And I'll watch it again. <laughs> I'll probably watch this on a regular basis. Definitely, it's definitely a Halloween favorite.
0: amazing authentic story of Jack the Ripper, the unknown killer whose mass murders shocked the world. The actual cases in the actual setting. London, a city torn apart by fear and hate, as the mob howled for the blood of the human monster Scotland Yard could never catch. Every lunatic and sensation seeker in London has given himself up as Jack the Ripper. Stop using that stupid name! I didn't christen him, sir, but the one who did knew what he was talking about. Have you ever seen any of his victims? Who was this arch fiend who struck in the night? Why were prostitutes his chosen victims? Mary Clark. Mary Clark. Are you Mary Clark? Who was Mary Clark? The mystery woman who held the key to his strange passion? What was the ghastly trademark he left on every corpse? These wounds are not the savage stashings of a maniac. A careful, well-defined abdominal incisions that show a good knowledge of anatomy and surgery. Now you'll see this sensational true story from the files of Scotland Yard, revealed in all its shocking scope. Girls, the Ripper marked for death, caught in the grip of uncontrollable hysteria. The wild gay nights of the turbulent city shadowed by the bloodlust of the most terrifying killer of all time. The Ripper! He's done it. The river done another of them. <laughs> the river! The done it again! The river's done it again! You too will be swept along in a spell of seething panic as the screen gives a startling answer to the most baffling question in the history of crime. <laughs>
2: Okay, in a lot of ways, one of my favorite Severn releases for a long time has been their release of the 1959 British film Jack the Ripper. Now, I'm a bit of an aficionado on Jack the Ripper. I've been, a, I've been like so many millions of others, fascinated by the historical events around those murders. And um, this film, it was uh, I, I did not realize this until digging into the extras, but this was the first film to be able to be called Jack the Ripper.
1: Yes. There have been other films, as they, yeah. they make the point to, in, the, in the commentary, and other, there have been other films based on the Jack the Ripper legend, like, yeah. the, like the Lodger with Laird Krieger and uh, The Man in the Attic with Jack Palance and others. But this was the first time that the, that the title Jack DeRupper, was used for a feature film.
2: And I'll be honest, I had not ever seen this film until this release. It had, uh, it had somehow escaped me.
1: Yes, I saw this film. My first experience with this film, uh, telling my agent now, came in, the, I would say, the mid-to-late maybe to late 1960s on local broadcast television. And they used to show older films. In the mid to late 60s, an older film was like something like the original Dracula or the original Frankenstein or the the Cat People or sometimes even Kaltiki, the Immortal Monster, if you remember that one. It was an yeah. Italian film. They used to show that a lot. But they showed this film and some of the Hammer films. I remember they showed this film. They had a series of broadcasts on one of the local – I think on Saturday afternoon where they had older British films and this must have been like 1968, maybe like 10 years after this was made, and they showed this. And the thing I remember about it was the famous ending. We actually see like a gore scene where blood come in. We actually see blood. The whole film is in black and white, except for the final scene, which was in blood color. And that's what we have here. We have that version. That's the American version. And the older, more conservative UK version. Well, the...
2: Um yeah, it, it's weird because the disc does include the British and the U.S. versions and both have things to recommend them. Um, I i have to admit, I've watched both versions of the film. I am not the biggest fan of the score that was added to the U.S. version. Very over the top. It's very much the score of an a, a, an episode of the Avengers or or a police procedural American television episode. It's... It's too much.
1: Yeah, it's it's very over the top and very prominent. And it's like, it's almost Mickey Mousing. It's like telling you how to feel. You yeah. Know? Feel scared. Yeah, it,
2: it, those those bizarre string stings when he's stabbing, you know, that, that beautiful shot of Jack the Ripper stabbing a victim in shadow and each stab punctuated
1: by the string is going,
2: eh, eh, and it's like, okay. It's not working,
1: right? But they were—they did that for a specific purpose. They did that to sell it in America, because yeah. this film, and uh, and you know uh, Baker uh, the, the the team the it was co-directed by uh,
2: by Robert
1: yeah, S. Baker by, and by, Ro- uh, by Robert S. Baker yeah and uh, Matty Berman okay and they it's they talk okay uh, Robert. Uh, baker, screenwriter Jimmy Sangster, the assistant director, and a British film historian talk about this film at great depth and great detail about the making of the film, why it was made, how it was marketed, and how uh, when they they sold it to America, it was purchased and sold to America. They turned this in uh, to a big, big, big hit in America and and around the world by doing that because. It was, play, it was it was was for the peanut gallery in a sense. They wanted to emphasize the violence. They wanted to make people. They wanted to thrust you into the suspense. They wanted to make it gory, which they did at the very end with the added footage. And uh, th- so they did it f- for a very specific purpose. The British UK version is much more subtle and much more ambiguous and and maybe more artful, I would say. Yeah, probably,
2: but I mean. Oh, well, also, and this is great that this um, this Blu-ray, like I say, it has both versions of the film, but it also has um, the alternate nude scenes, the uh, the the several scenes with uh, the dancing girls, quote unquote, that were shot both clothed and nude.
1: Yes, and uh, th- that's good. That's good stuff too. That they have all this extra stuff in there, and you can actually see both versions and how they compare. Now very interesting the uh, the, the co-director um, who talks about this they, they who was also this who also shot the film he talks about how it was shot. there's a lot of uh, what they call Dutch camera angles off angles you know yeah which and he says that he did that specifically he was very influenced by uh, the third man the classic carol reed directed film starring orson welles and which was shot like with a lot of those dutch camera angles which people talk about a lot that's considered a four-star film but he shot his film deliberately like that to make it to give you more of a feeling of like terror imbalance like a twisted world a twisted point of view of the killer and it's very effective the way it's shot i thought and that, that that directorial decision makes it i think in fact, I was thinking when I watched the film. It was made in 1958 or 59. It almost reminds me of a crimmy or an early Jollop, okay?
2: I was going to say just the same thing. It really does have the feel of either anticipating or or being just a part of
1: the crimmys. Right. It, yeah, because the crimmies were in black and white, and they're shot with all these kind of canted or uh, st- stylized or Dutch camera angles often not all the way throughout but at certain points and had, they had a very lurid atmosphere of the Crimies they are about killings in the street so yeah it, it definitely anticipates them and it anticipates some of the early jowls and, um, and so that's I think makes it a very historically important film and uh, Jimmy Sangster who wrote a lot of the Hank's Uh, hammer films like Curse of Frankenstein and Horror of Dracula excellent screenwriter who also wrote a lot of the best early to mid 60s hammer films talks a lot about he just wanted to tell a good story that he wasn't interested in telling the real story of Jack the Ripper he was just telling a story about a killer obsessive killer in a certain environment in Victorian London and he did a good job by doing that and the, the director and the photographer Baker talks about that's what he wanted to, they, they weren't really making his film about Jack the Ripper as much as a kind of a atmospheric, psychological, melodramatic horror film. And it works very, very well that
2: way. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a superior film. And I, I'm not as well versed in Jack the Ripper lore as I was long ago <laughs> back when I read a lot of books on the subject. But it was fascinating to see that this film very much um, very much tells the tale as it was accepted at the time in the late right. 50s, and it it does a really good you know fictionalizing of those events. And it's I, I think it's it's well directed. It's well produced. Um, when you look back at the film, it's kind of surprising to take note of how few. Uh, actors and how few sets there are and yet it doesn't feel cramped it doesn't no. feel as if there's something limiting the story that's being told it's really effectively done and the uh, the, the cinematography too uh, it, it's really well done I'm, I'm i'm always pleased with this movie every time i see it the,
1: the cinematography is excellent and as i said he baker who was the cinematographer co-director he took you know, the third man is the model. And that that that's a great film. The yeah. cinematography I believe is still talked about. It's considered a four star film. So that was a very good template he used. And it was a perfect choice for this film to shoot it with these kind of gothic off Dutch camera angles to use like low key lighting to like do a lot of point of view shots from the killer's point of view. Or or do a lot of shots from like does she just see like the doctor's bag that he's carrying the lighting
2: is amazing at times. There are a couple of shots in the movie long before the, the identity of the killer is revealed, right. where the killer is on screen, but the lighting is is smart enough so that you can't discern his
1: features. It's really right. well done stuff. Right, you can see him. You can see a shot from not only the killer's point of view, but kind of it's kind of like you're stalking the killer. Okay, that's the way it's shot. It's like yeah. you're behind the killer and you're watching the killer stalk. One of the one of the dancers or one of the prostitutes, that he's stalking, Okay, so it's like uh, he puts you in the the direction in cinematography is so well thought out. He puts you right into the film.
2: I was really pleased with the audio commentary with uh, yes. with Robert Baker and Jimmy Sangster. Um, right. When I saw that it was uh, hosted by uh, Marcus Hearn, right. uh, I've read a lot of his uh, his work on Hammer, and I knew that the guy, he was the right guy to host this commentary track with these filmmakers. This is a really good, really good commentary track. And if honestly, if that were the only extra on this disc, it'd make it worth buying.
1: Right. And I, I learned once again, I had no, I, I I remembered this film once again, from seeing it when I was 12 years old or 11 years old on television. And, uh, I mean, I was, like, really caught. I remember watching on television and uh, saying, this is, you know, I didn't know as much about film then as I know now. I, I remember thinking, this is a really well-done film, you know, and it, it, as I said, it puts you right into, the, right into the action, and it also puts you, like, right into the scene where you feel like you're behind Jack the Ripper, like maybe in an alleyway, and you're watching him stalk the woman, okay? And he does it by camera placement, by putting like half the, half the frame would be like you'll see some boxes stacked there another half Jack the Ripper you'll see his shoulder and you'll see the back of his head you'll see like he's wearing black gloves in some scenes like the Black Glove Killer and the jollo and the Krimis so once again you're seeing the way it's shot the way it's set up the way it's staged is very much like the Krimis which were just starting to appear at that time and it anticipates the Jalos with the Black Glove Killer and the Killer in the Streets very artfully done and very well done. And I remember I, I watched the the British version first, and then I watched the the, the U the U S the altered version with a more prominent musical score and uh, extra footage and you really didn't need to have you really didn't need to do that they really didn't need to add a a kind of a score that really drove those points home they could just have left it alone but that addition those that change in musical score i think really sold really sold the films to international audiences who needed to kind of you know have it over the top you know
2: Maybe so, maybe so. I will say that um, the other two, besides the, uh, the auto-commentary and the uh, the alternate nudie scenes, there are two other neat little extras on here that, like I say, as someone who's kind of fascinated by the Jack the Ripper murders, I was very pleased to see because one's an interview with uh, Dennis Meekle, who's written a book on the Jack the Ripper murders, and the movie specifically. It's a ten-minute long little piece where he it's a it's a brilliant essay because he lays out how we got to the point where for a very long period of time people felt that the scenario laid out in this movie was probably who jack the ripper was in other words that he was a a doctor who for some reason was pursuing some specific person right and and He lays this out brilliantly. It is a great little 10-minute extra from this author who puts in position historically not just the murders themselves but the way the murders were viewed because of a book that was written in 1929 that's mostly fictional but was accepted over the decades. Right. until it kind of became codified in films like this and murder by decree and from hell so, to the point where that's almost something that it, it it takes something massive to get people to understand that that's probably not the truth.
1: Right, and then another theory came out after that that Jack Ripper was somebody quite different, okay? Yep, yep. And uh, interestingly enough, I'd just like to end by saying this, that um, this... Um, there was another theory of Jack Ripper. Jess Franco made a 1976 film also called Jack Ripper, okay? And mm-hmm. that was shot in color, and Klaus Kinski was excellent, gives a really good performance, almost without dialogue, as Jack Ripper. And this film really is very similar to that, and I think it may have influenced that Jess Franco film, because in that film, Jack Ripper, is, the true identity is almost the same kind of character as he is in this earlier film, and he has almost the exact same motives, okay? And the scenes are shot in a very similar way. This film also is very similar to Jess Franco's 1962 The Awful Dr. Orloff, which is about Howard Vernon plays a guy who's out in the streets abducting women for ghastly reasons, and the camera work in that film, which in black and white, is very similar to the camera work in this 1959 Jack the Ripper. Jess Franco uses the dutch camera angles the black and white imagery the characters in the alley at night in black and white so it's got a very similar visual style atmosphere
2: and, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Yeah. Um, it would be an interesting double feature to watch right. this film and Awful Dr. Orloff back-to-back.
1: And if you did watch them back-to-back, I think you would see that, yeah, this was probably, I, I would bet that Jeff Frank probably had seen this film or somebody involved and said, hey, let's maybe try something like this, because it's very similar. And both films are good films but for very different reasons, but you could, and then Jeff Frank actually made a Jack the Ripper film almost 20 years later, which had, a very similar plot and characterizations. And it was also called Jack the Ripper, and the, the Ripper had the same motives, and it was the same kind of character. Good that, film, too. I, I that, think... Yes, that's it, a film.
2: Uh, I don't know which of these... which of the two films I would prefer overall. I, I like them both about the same, but they're, they're different enough to be, once again, another good double feature if you wanted to go I, that way.
1: I had recently... Listened to an audio interview with Jess Franco on one of the uh, on one of the discs that came out in America um, on uh, Bob Weir Dows whatever. I think it's a Full Moon video put put it out, and it was an interview I had never heard with Jess Franco about it. And he talks about filming Jack the Ripper in the mid seventies, and he said that uh, when, when he was writing the script, he said that he had heard this theory that Jack the Ripper was a member of the royal family. Okay, okay, and uh, but he said that even though that theory came out, like, I think in the 1970s, okay, or late 60s, and there's some films that they did that with. He said he didn't want to do that, though. He didn't want to make a Jack Ripper, like, as a social political statement that a member of the royal family was doing this to the lower class. He went back and did the same thing they did with this Jack Ripper. He made him, like, a, just a psychopath who was very disturbed and didn't want. To, he didn't want to do that. So, I think that's very interesting. That there are two. And he points out that there's two different ways you can handle the topic, and that was his preferred method. The same one they used in this very good 1959 British
2: film. I, I, I thank Severin for putting this film out because until yes. this Blu-ray release, I had never seen this movie, and I'm I'm a big fan of it now.
1: Yes. Yes. I am too. And uh, I, I haven't seen it since, like I said, I'm, when I was a lot younger in the 1960s, I had good memories of it. And boy, it's really nice to have it in high definition and have both versions and all these very interesting extras and this wonderful uh, audio commentary.
2: Up this brief episode between Mr. Monell and myself, I would like to once again thank Robert Monell for being a guest on the show, coming on and talking about new Blu-ray releases. Uh, when we originally thought about doing this, I think we're gonna concentrate just on the European cinema stuff. But uh, it was just too much fun to also talk about uh, Invasion of the Blood Farmers. That's a movie that uh, it's such a it's it's a perfect amalgam of everything going wrong and somehow the film remaining incredibly entertaining but uh, hope you enjoyed listening to us talk about these new releases and our enthusiasm for them as well as the uh, sheer fun of just being in a time when there are so many companies out there going out of their way to treat these films well and to pack them with wonderful extras that uh, set the film properly within its correct place, giving it the status that it needs, and in some cases making a solid argument for why the film is important enough to deserve the attention of people who may have never even heard of it before. (sighs) I salute Severin and mondo macabro and screen factory and all those companies out there doing this stuff now they're doing some of the best cinema restoration and cinema appreciation for collectors like us and i'm assuming for a lot of people like you as well so thanks to mr Monel and thank you for downloading and listening to the show If you have any comments or suggestions, the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com, or you can join us over on the Facebook page. If you've got some questions, you can post them there as well. Once again, thank you for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon.